Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Welcome back. This is episode 187 and I appreciate you tuning back in. Today we're going to be talking about why you should be happy with all the money you get up front if you sell to a private equity firm or honestly any buyer and why really diving in as much as you possibly can to understand why the different buyers want to purchase your company because every buyer buys for their own reasons and they're not going to tell you because they have a reason to fork over a bunch of money to purchase your company and the reason they don't want to tell you is because the moment that you know what the biggest motive is for them to purchase your company, you're going to have leverage over them in the deal. And because of how difficult it can be to truly understand all of the dynamics of what's happening with the buyer and behind the scenes of why they want to purchase your company, it is crucial that you get as much cash as you possibly can up front. Hopefully you built a really good, valuable business that allows you to get that much, as much money as you possibly can up front, but at least get as much up front where you're happy with it and it hits your personal financial targets because you don't know whether you're going to get the earn out or get the rolled equity because everything changes when it's no longer your business. Today on the show, I have Todd Eberhardt who has grown and sold a couple multi-million dollar companies and he had double digit growth in one of his big companies that he ended up selling called Comworks. And he started the company, they bootstrapped it, used their own money, bought out a couple partners and then had very rapid double digit growth for years. And Todd shares with us how he was talking with his partner about when are we going to realize this value as they kept plowing money back into the business and he talked about how cash is a huge suck for a growing business. And they kept wondering, like, when are we going to be able to take some chips off the table? So they started talking to some investment bankers and he discusses some of the things that they did to decouple themselves from the business and then help the company propel its growth. But then what they were doing as they tried to take the company to market with a couple investment bankers and then what they did to eventually sell the business to a private equity firm. And he talks about 
his major lessons learned, and how one of his biggest takeaways is that every buyer buys for their own reasons. He's going to share what it was like selling to a private equity firm and then what ended up happening after they sold as he really truly understood the motives of the PE firm and then what happened after the board changed hands and then what that ended up doing to him and his role and his journey post-closing. Todd's amazing. I love his story. He's super authentic and he shares how he doesn't regret a single thing, but there's a lot of lessons that he learned and he was willing to share them with you on the show today. There's two things I want you to do. One is if you got any more feedback on changing the title of the podcast to intentional growth, how to grow the value of your business with the end in mind, please shoot me a LinkedIn message or an email. Otherwise, the second piece would be check out one of our two-day intentional growth boot camps based on the five principles, where it's two days jam-packed based on our two case studies about how they understood what their company was worth, navigated their education on all the different exit options, and then put a value growth plan in place to accomplish what they wanted from their business and why they were able to accomplish that. So without further ado, here's my interview with Todd. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Todd, how are you doing today? Doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to it. We got both fellow podcasters and I'm going to be on yours here pretty soon. And I, so I don't know how many you become a, a guest on, but I've been on uh, probably two recently and it's really weird because <laughs> like it's less, it's more, it's more nerve wracking, I think, than actually just asking questions and letting someone else talk. So we'll see. I don't know if you, if you had the similar experience, but um, it's a hundred percent very unnerving being on the other side of it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are they going to ask? Am I going to be prepared? And it's like, you no, know, we're just going to be talking about your story. So unless you're talking about someone else's story, you should be just fine. So like, you know, you and I got introduced by a couple of mutual connections and uh, you know, you've got a couple of different exits that you've gone through and you're helping business owners right now. So just, you know, I had an absolute blast talking to you. So for the listeners, let's set the groundwork here and, Maybe just give them a cliff, uh, you know, cliff note version of, you know, where, what you're doing today, you know, come, some of the things of your story. And then, and then I want to hear how, like, how did you decide to start the company that you eventually sold? And we can kind of then start from the beginning. Okay. Uh, we'll start with today and back up from there if that works. Yeah, perfect. Uh, today is Dynasty Leadership. So this is the sixth company. They've all been startups, uh, nothing sexy with VC funding, all bootstrap kind of things. Dynasty, it's a real simple business. I coach CEOs and their executive teams, and I facilitate strategic planning for the companies that are looking to grow through innovation. So pretty pretty simple world. If we back up and go for the other companies, it started in 1995 with a company called Comworks here in the Twin Cities. How'd you start it? Like, was it accidental or was it on purpose or... So we all three worked, uh, the three partners, so Jeffrey Jacob, Al Lampe, who's still CEO today at Comworks, uh, myself did a short stint at another company uh, that was more of a lifestyle business. And within about three months, you kind of figured this isn't really going anywhere. And I said, you know what, guys, I'm going to go do something else. And that's when we got to talking and had a few beers and said, you know what, we can go do something that is going to kind of mimic the world we want to move to and give us some control over our lives, let us pay some bills with the family and move forward. And that's that was what kicked it off. 
That's awesome. I, I like how you said mimic the world we want to look in, or we want to create. Cause like, I think there's so many times when we talk about, um, you know, what do you want from your business? And it's like, people just, this to the business is like a way to, you know, build the business, build the life that you want. And it ends up coming with a, a lot of responsibility. And so what, what, what was oh, the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was the, give us a, the, the overview of what, what Comworks was and then, and what year was it? And what were some of the first things that you guys started doing? So Comworks was, if you think about it, uh, it, it's like a general contractor for the technical world, right? So 1995, 96 was a a fast moving time when a lot of companies were starting to network all of their field offices. So if you think about like a Best Buy, Best Buy, you know, now we take it for granted. But at the time, if you check out, you know, the register and said, well, you guys are out of big screen TVs, you know, from Panasonic. And they're like, oh, wait a minute. I know we don't have it in Minnetonka, but... I can see right here, we got it in Ridgefield. Do you want me to hold it for you? Well, that takes a lot of technology connected. And back then, that was not the thing. So what companies would call us to do was to say, hey, we have these 50 stores or these 20 bank branches or whatever. And said, make them all look and act the same with technology. So we would go out and rather than using our own people, we connected a bunch of subcontractors that worked under our flag. And, you know, you roll them all up. And over time, I think we ended up with, you know, about 4,000, 5,000 subcontractors across the country. Along that, like, I'm just curious, like when you three started, I'm kind of, um, we can ebb and flow between like the the actual operations and then also the back end structure sure. um, is, you know, when you had three of you, and I don't know if this, this will probably tie into eventually when you exited and how that all worked between you three, because you said one of them still run the business is like, what was the like spirit of the like the partnership? Like, did you guys? Because did you guys like really rock solid? You know, nail down the the operating agreement and roles, responsibilities, or like was it run and gun and let's go install projects? And then that all came later. Like, what was the what was the dialogue like with you three? So it's kind of two separate sides. To that one is the the structure, the let's just say the legal documentation, mm-hmm. and the other is how does the business run you know, in real life. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, for all you attorneys out there, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I'll say this. I'll give huge credit to, to our attorney, Bob Christensen, and our accountant, John Dodge, that help us set up something really solid. And, and they gave the best advice, which was, hey, get these details nailed down while you guys are still friends, still talking to each other, because sooner or later, you're going to get in trouble. And you hope you never look at this, but you probably will. And so right away, we, we actually got good advice, which part of that was a buy-sell agreement. And we can talk about that as we go, mm-hmm. uh, because one of our partners did exit. How it worked functionally is very different. When you're just three guys, you know, we were in a tiny little office in, in Crystal, Minnesota, subleasing a place. <laughs> and we were so frightened that, that a client might actually show up at our door. We actively only sold to the furthest places possible to like California, New York, <laughs> Texas. We were literally ready to hatch a brick that somebody was going to walk through the door and see how tiny we were. That's awesome. So did you guys have the, when you say like the role, like reality versus the legal docs too, because like, so would we, we, we talk about this, a lot of the, this concept versus ownership versus W2 role and responsibility. Right. And, yeah. and you know, when you got three of you, I don't know if you were all three, a third, a third, a third. And then how did you guys start divvying up the, the, like the roles and relationships or like the ongoing management stuff? 
Yeah, so it was a third, a third, a third. We all kind of threw in and, and we didn't know any different. You know, honestly, if I had to take a lesson learned out of that, you probably want to figure out how much each one is willing to do and what they're bringing to the table and make that be the, you know, the percentage and probably only count, you know, maybe no more than half your equity early and the rest of it will figure out as we kind of grow into the business. That's one oh, of the things I think about a lot. So like you three would have like each split 50%. Yeah. And then, pick, pick a number yeah. that's less than a hundred because you're <laughs> yeah. going to have to allocate resources and capital because someone eventually does more. Someone has a bigger role and sometimes people want to step back and maybe you'll get a new partner. And there's all kinds of other things that in the beginning we never think about. So, but I mean, for us, we started with a sub, sub chapter S corp, a third, a third, a third. And then I was the guy cold calling. And Al was the guy, once I sold it, he would make things happen. And then Jeffrey was the guy that was financed to make sure we got paid. So that was the simple world. <laughs> very, very good roles. Like all of those extremely necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> was, was helpful. So, you know, in the beginning though, so the reality is though, until you get good customers, everybody's trying to make contacts, make sales. So we're all helping with that. And then like every small business, you get overwhelmed. All of a sudden you got all this business and now we're all trying to create, you know, work orders and, and projects and things like that. And then we got to figure out how do you get it built? And so it is a lot like watching somebody try to squeeze a balloon. You know, it's, you take <laughs> care of bits and pieces at a time. So, you know, now that you do strategic planning, you've gone through a couple exits, you know, going back to that point, it, like what was the plan? Like, and maybe kind of give us some like timelines and some like, you know, milestones in the business as you guys were growing? Like, what was the plan? Was it just grow and make money? And like, what was, like, was there, had anybody ever been through an exit, like, or starting with the end in mind? Or what was the, the, the dialogue like? It was a zero experience crowd. We had, we had no preconcept of what, uh, what an exit would look like. It would have probably been hugely helpful had some of the strategic planning options been available out there. Uh, one of your boot camps would have been nice. You know, things like that where you kind of are more mindful about, about what creates value. To, to be brutally honest, so I had this conversation with my wife, Leslie, the other day. We were kind of talking about this. And she goes, do you remember how excited we were once the business started? And our whole goal was to let her go to part-time, you know, yep. just to make <laughs> enough money so that we could have a life together, pay for a house, have some freedom and have you know, be able to do the things we wanted to do. So it was much more about the freedom than some big golden parachute at the end. But I, I would say it was probably a much more simpler focus that we had. So as, as you like, which, which you said a lot there that I, I think is interesting because, you know, I think a, a lot of people like start the business for that freedom. But then you, you mentioned that also it would have been interesting to know about what creates value long-term. And I think yeah. there's this challenge of like people striving towards profits. First of all, when you're growing it, growth consumes capital. So you're actually having to burn more cash than probably most people right. think. <laughs> and then, and then as you're growing, you're not yeah. having as much no, you're, cash. You're hundred percent right. Go into that. Cause I'm curious. Cause like, it's just like value creation is at the end, but that's like a 10 year, well, now I have a valuable business that gives me options, but like the path in between is just extremely difficult. Yeah. So a couple of thoughts on that. You're 100% right. Uh, a growing business is such a hungry animal for cash. And because we didn't have outside capital, it was our cash. And so, you know, really, we didn't take any paychecks. I think in like the eighth month, we were profitable right out of the gate because it was super lean. But we didn't even take any kind of cash out until the eighth month. And that was just to pay taxes. And so we yep. were kind of riding off our spouses the whole way. 
And they would be looking back and it's like, this is going to work out, right? This is going to happen. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 right. yeah. yeah. Trust me, trust me, trust me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's one of those things that you think about now in retrospect is the honest truth is, Ryan, we were never poorer than when the business was growing. But on the outside, everybody sees this fast growing business and we're hiring people along the way. And, you know, they see big client names and all these other things. And they think, geez, these guys got to be rolling in it. And it's, it's just not the case. So, yeah, I, it is so true. I was, I interviewed Jack Stack, um, who was the founder of the great game of business. And he was actually instrumental into creating the Inc 5000, um, Todd. And he said that out of the Inc 5000, and he's all about creating value, like I mean, mm-hmm. with his the grandfather of open book management ESAPs. And he's like, at the Inc 5000, he goes, less than half of these people can afford two payrolls. For real? That's crazy. And he's like, because they're all growing so fast. And he goes, they're so broke, cash broke, that, and like everybody gives him all this recognition. He actually like got so sick of it. That's why he actually ended up bowing out of it because he was like, he thought that everybody was getting rewarded for the wrong things. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and he makes a good point is it's flashy on the front side and it feels good that you're growing. It doesn't talk at all about what the long-term profitability is. And, you know, you think about it. One of the things we thought about a lot is as we grew, you know, you get 100, 200 people on the payroll, you know, depending on how many family members are involved in that, you know, you have quite potentially 100 plus families, depending on you, that they're going to make their rent check, that they're going to buy groceries. That's a, that becomes a lot of responsibility. So as, as you're building that responsibility, I'm curious, like, what was the kind of the acceler- uh, the, the, the path of growth or like the, the um, pace of growth? And then as you were doing that, you said that you, you know, you had this buy sell agreement. So like, you know, how, I mean, how did you handle the, the, the partnership issues of people not doing the same thing? Cause again, I, you know, we talk in the boot camp. it was like, you can have, everybody can have different owners, right? But then usually they're bringing something to the table, whether it's capital or sweat equity or, you know, something. And then you've got W2. So you have, like you said, sales, marketing, finance, and then operations. But as those, you know, those actual W2 roles evolved, how are you guys handling those conversations as like, who's pulling what weight and how did that correlate to ownership conversations? Yeah. So as we grew, and and again, there's tons of lessons along the way, which, you know, when we say lessons, what it really means is we made a mistake and we figured out what we have to do to fix that. So I, I don't want to candy coat the fact that we had all these answers. But, you know, so you talked about a path to growth. We worked with large companies, you know, and it sounds sexy, but the reality is you make 400 cold calls, you're going to get hung up on 399 times and because they all have stuff going on and they all have a plan. U.S. Bank did not get to be the size they are by waiting for Todd Everhart to give him a call, right? So, you know, you're breaking into someone else's world. You're taking money out of someone else's pocket. So early on, if you talk about strategy and path to growth, we kept getting blocked. And what we had to come up with is what is going to work that's going to get their attention. And so, you know, after a number of different trials, we came up with a very simple statement, which is give us your worst. Give me your crappiest site. Give me the one that if it fell off the face of the earth tomorrow, it couldn't get worse than it is today. So they would send us to places like Tonawanda, New York and Osage, (laughs) Iowa to do these crazy things as a test. 
and we earned some credibility, but it wasn't like we won these big RFPs. It was little by little and scratching and clawing our way up there. So not super sexy, but that's in reality the way things worked. If you evolve into the question of partnership and division of responsibilities, now you start to talk about, okay, well, as the business grows and you start to add people more than just worker bees, how do you start to move that around? And we did stay with that same thing. I stayed heading up sales. Al headed up operations and Jeffrey stayed with finance. And I'll give you the honest truth, which is I waited way too long to let go of doing the sales because it was fun and it was going and we were making money and I was good at it. But it's it's not uncommon. So the guys I coach today, letting go of some things, delegating in the right way. Right. Um, it was a, you know, that was, that was a learning lesson. Once I started adding other salespeople around me, we made them successful. And I realized, God, we waited way too long for that. And then I waited way too long to add management. And I should have done that sooner because uh, honestly, not a great manager, great leader, not a great manager. And so then we started adding managers and then everybody started doing better. And we did that, you know, uh, I would say Al's probably a better delegator and better manager holding over people, but everybody's got their own strengths. And so we kept going. Once we effectively started figuring out good ways to delegate and add people and add talent, things kept growing exponentially. And I'd combine that with what I would call a rule of fives, which was a strategy, which was super helpful in the growth. So I want to get into the rule of fives because I'm curious on what that is. But before we do that, um, you know, I think you you hit you hit on a couple of things, and I'm curious on how you guys made these decisions. Of, you know, when you so you're growing your it's consuming cash, and then I think, you know, the you mentioned that you you enjoyed sales and it was fun, which I think is one of the dynamics of trying to delegate and let go, right? I mean, but then there's also I think there's this financial decision that has to be made of are we willing to invest when we're already starving for cash? Someone that's going to be 120 grand, even though we would like to make 150 consistently. It's a financial decision to invest, to hopefully get that return, even while you're also cash strapped. And then it, you know, the, if you love it, it's probably even a better excuse to not let go. Versus if you hate it, you kind of might, you know, swallow that golf ball before <laughs> you should otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. So curious on how, like, how did, how did you guys, does that make sense? I don't know if you got any insights so, on that. I, Two things, and if I'm off base, you can let me know. But the first is, how do you go about making the decision to hire somebody that's going to make as much or more than you make to put the business to the next level up? And that's usually one of the big considerations, one we wrestled with a lot. How do you how do you get talent coming on board? And you know, strategically, we had to make a decision of what is our line of sight, what is our vision, near term and long term. Is this as good as it gets, or do we see a bigger opportunity for a bigger future for ourselves and our people? And we were all in on the fact that yeah, this has some real legs. We were one of the first companies to have, it sounds kind of corny right now because everything's so commonplace, but to have an interactive portal where, where our clients yeah. could see exactly where the work in progress was. You know, back in 1995, if you had like a spinning globe on your website, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> flash player, woo. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we were pumping tons of cash into building out an interactive system, an operating system behind. We would have gladly bought one off the shelf. There just wasn't anything at the time. Mm -hmm. So we made the, the choice to make a big investment in systems. That was the first major cash outlay of our focus. The second was in talent, where this is, again, this is a lesson early on where the first, this is 
I'll say lesson, which is a mistake. But what we hired for was people from the industry that had a track record with, you know, their database of names. That was kind of the, the big three. And we were so excited to have an industry veteran come along. It's a huge mistake. I was going to say, explain that because I actually was talking to uh, Gary Braun, who's a sales consultant here in town. And he was talking about, you know, again, we talk about everybody wanting to hire the role decks from the competitor. Yeah. And a lot of people do that. Why was it a mistake for you guys? Well, so first of all, nobody, this, this Rolodex, this database that they say they're bringing across, nobody ever jumps ship. None of the clients that they say they know, they just <laughs> so doesn't true. happen, right? <laughs> right. It, it just doesn't happen that fast. You may have one or two because they're mad at something else and they'll go with you because the timing is right. But nobody drags all that across the line. And just because they know them doesn't mean they're going to make a change. The other thing industry veterans tend to bring with them is baggage. And, you know, oh, we did it this way at IBM. We did it this way at Black Box or, you know, whatever the big company was. Well, you know what? When you're, you know, a 50-person startup and you guys are working, you know, 10 hours a day, it's a different game. So (laughs) we, we we had much better luck as we started to get more scientific about it hiring for a good cultural fit, you know, for people that had a great work ethic, you know, they, they may have been farm kids, but they were good on a computer, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you can teach almost any skill, but work ethic's a tough thing. You know, it's, it's tough to, to swing around. And so once we started to get alignment with that, you know, we, we look to our friends, we look to the colleges we came from, we look to people where we could draw a line of where we knew good quality people were coming from. So I hired my brother, who was awesome, did a great job for us. Brian was fantastic. We hired some other guys that were from different universities around the area. And you know what? They were young. They weren't super expensive at the time. And it it made a huge difference, and they were all committed to it. Eventually, you know, we had to step up our game. And as as the stakes grow, then you do have to hire some talent that that has a bigger paycheck attached to it. And that's also a big consideration. So... When you were looking at, and as you're hiring the people and investing in the systems and you had found kind of your, your, your knack of give us the worst, knowing that you do strategic planning now, Todd, like, you know, I'm assuming like if you were to look at like, you know, all the different uh, models of how to make choices and decisions in your strategic plan, you know, you probably would have come up with something like this, but how, like, how does that, how did that fit into your accelerated growth because of how, how you know, focus the decision was. And then how does that tie into the rule of five? I don't know if they were tied together. Yeah, it's very much tied together because early on, like a lot of businesses, look, we chased anything, anything that looked like it had a technology edge that we thought we could help with, we jump on. And here's the problem. When you're dealing with subcontractors, you're already a middleman. And so that markup is going to be a big deal. And if you're doing local work, well, you know what, you're going to price yourself out of the market. So as we were chasing things around, we were moderately successful. But what we sat down and took a look at is where do we our best clients come from? Where are the ones that really appreciate the work we do, that pay us well, and are willing to rave about us to others? And so this is where that rule of fives came up. So what we did is we drew a hard line and said, this is all we're going to chase. And so we started with the idea of they have to have at least 50 locations, which means they have some geographic spread. And that meant that our ability to organize was meaningful. Mm -hmm. That means they had to have at least 5,000 people because having bodies, bodies use technology, bodies use phones, use computers, use all kinds of things, and they have to be able to communicate. So that was impactful. And 500 million in sales. They had to be big enough 
where they would want to spend the money to do these bigger, probably more capital intensive projects that we were actually very good at. Mm -hmm. So that, that was the bare bones of what it took off as. And that's kind of more demographic speaking. And look, if it was just that easy, you can go pull a list for pennies on the dollar and it rains new business. And you and I both know that's not the way it goes. But it was a starting point. It was a good way to get us focused on what we we're going to chase. And, and say no. And you could, yeah, and say no. Yeah, yeah. Excellent point. Until you're willing to say no to something, it's really not a strategy, is it? <laughs> That's a really, yeah, yeah, totally, totally, totally. And, and saying no is very hard, especially when you're chasing cash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know who's the hardest person to say no to, Ryan? My wife, but uh, other than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. And maybe she's, there's a, she's, she's probably number two. The hardest person to say no to is yourself. <laughs> no, you're probably right. You're probably you know, right. Yeah. Because so we have all these great ideas. Oh, this would be gross. This would be great. You know, and without somebody that was a good litmus test. And I'd say Alan Jeffrey were a great litmus test for that. It's like, that's a crazy idea. That's never going to work. Or, you know, let's roll the dice on that. And so I, I totally valued uh, my partners from that standpoint is they were just such clear thinking guys, even to this day, just very, very thoughtful about what we wanted to do. And to your point, we had to say no to a lot of things to chase that for what was worth it. So then as you're like in your, in your growth uh, journey here, like where did it start to like, it, cause it kind of, you know, as you, you said that you had a buy sell agreement and you, you, I mean, I don't know if you had a shotgun clause in there and, and you can feel free to elaborate on that. Like as the ownership and like you did, obviously you didn't leave 50% for future people or different things or, you know, investors, how did that conversation come up? Like what was a triggering point in the growth um, that where you guys actually started to have that? So about five years into it, we got to a point where we we're experiencing significant growth. Things were going really well. We we're moving fast, but a growing business is a hungry cash animal. And we were at a point of where we needed to put in cash and we were going to use our own money to do it. And, you know, Alan and I were said, this is it. This is where we want to go. It's worth investing in. I want to bet on myself. So we were going to put our own cash in. Jeffrey, our third partner. So he was 10 years older than us. His wife had passed away. So he was really carrying the ball for the whole family and his boys. So I oh. ultimate respect for him. Yeah. Yeah. But he was at a point, he's like, dude, I can't keep hitting the gas like this. We're just burning ourselves out. And yeah. I'm 10 years older. I, I want to step back. And we're like, okay, well, we're all in on this. I know you're not. Let's figure out how we use the language in our agreement and go through the buy-sell. And, you know, is is relatively simplistic in terms of, I think you take a multiplier of three times last year's, two times a year before, and one times a year before, and you kind of average those out to get a valuation. That was the simple math we did. And long and short of it was, we all agreed to it. None of us was happy. We thought we paid him too much. He thought he got too little. So it was probably the right number. <laughs> if everybody's upset, that means everybody yeah. won. <laughs> yeah. We're all equally angry with yeah. the deal, but it, you know, and he walked away fine and, you know, and it was the right thing to do. We gave him some freedom. He got money to be able to enjoy himself and, and have a good time. And Al got uh, a chance with me to be able to go and double down on what we thought was a really good bet on ourselves. So, okay, like this, I want to peel this, this uh, situation, apart, not necessarily the situation apart, but what happened with your guys' mindset? Because one is just for clarification purposes for the listeners is when you say you looked at the, the multiple, so if it was three times you, you were talking, did you normalize the EBITDA? So you cleaned it all up and said, okay, if this was ongoing, this is what we, the cash flow would be like. And then you applied the three, two, and one to the last handful of years and normalized it. Is that what you're talking about? 
Yeah, yeah. So you take normalized EBA, um, you know, outside of anything else that would be abnormal or one-time occurrences. And then we kind of agreed, here's what we're going to count. Here's what we're not going to count. You kind of back into it from there. But, you know, the, the clean thing about something like that, and there's lots of ways to do it, right? But the clean thing about that is we knew from day one what that would look like. And it put the emphasis on this last year while still giving some credit for the previous years in declining order. How about any, any future years? It did not take that into account because our, our assumption was uh, once you stop rowing the boat, you know, it's yep. other people's horsepower. Yep. Which makes sense. And uh, unless you the only, yeah, uh, for partnership buyouts, I would agree. But if you're going to be selling it to like a private equity firm or something like that, I would, which we're going to get into, you want to mm-hmm. be selling future potential, right? <laughs> so, 100, yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. And, and, you know, when you're talking to private equities, that's what they're buying, right? right, they're, right, right. They're, if they're going to cut you a check, yeah. they expect it's going to be worth more in three yeah. to four years. Uh, otherwise, why do it? Yep. So I want to, so when, when you guys go through this, um, but you know, just a couple of clarifying questions on the deal structure. Did, what did you, do you, do you uh, go to a bank to pay them out? Did you go do seller financing? What was the, the, the structure like? I'm trying to think of how that worked out. I think we t- took part of it out of cash on hand. I'm not sure if we took any out of our own pockets, but it's possible. And then we had a, a short-term buyout that only lasted maybe probably another year or so, okay. so we could pay some out of cash forward proceeds. So then the question that I wanted to get to is, did you and your, your, uh, the remaining partner did, was there any kind of shift in your mindset to going, okay, I kind of understand this whole value creation versus annual income thing. Right. I mean, like, was there a shift in your mindset and did that help bring any kind of clarity into why you were going to be doubling down and what you eventually wanted down the road? Yeah, actually, that's a good point because at that point, once you start laying out your own cash for something that is not going to be anything you can hold or handle for quite some time, <laughs> you start to say, okay, what are we putting money towards that for us too is going to be worth more in the future? And uh, yeah, it became very clear that you know we're taking a look at overall profitability, taking a look at what were we going to put capital towards it taking a look at what were we willing to spend money on from a talent acquisition standpoint and and all that became front and center in in every conversation did you did you guys start talking about like what end result might be for you guys or was it more just what are we going to invest in for the growth strategies so for that point in time it was really more about the growth because we we could see that you know again huge opportunities a lot we had just kind of barely in our minds started to scratch the surface but if you fast forward a few more years then we got to the point of saying, so So I picture it like playing at a blackjack table, right? So Al and I are sitting there and we're crushing it. We're winning hand after hand and doing great. And so the chips are piling up, but the casino will not let you take chips. You got to stay and keep playing that <laughs> same thing. Yeah. And you know, sooner or later, you, you're going to run up against a dealer 21 and that, that's tough. And so we started to get two things in mind as we were moving forward. One is, look, we're growing. This is, this is healthy, but all, 100% of our cash is going into the business with the exception of you know, enough to keep a roof over our heads and pay taxes. And we're like, what would it be like if one, we could take some chips off the table and two, we also saw opportunity for acquisitions. So there was, there was other things out there and we knew we didn't have the cash to be able to do that. So that's when we started having conversations about outside capital and what would that look like? And, and that's when we started to move forward a few years into it. And uh, you know, again, we took three different passes at it, which I'd be happy to explain before we ended up with a group of investment bankers that 
we really kind of went through our acquisition with, went through our sale with. Why don't you expand on that? I'd love to hear it. The first two were bombs. The first two were horrible. So <laughs> there were so, three because the first two sucked. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. So, and they happened over a sequence of years. It wasn't like they were back to back, but the very first time we went through, we were super naive and um, we had gotten introduced to this other group and they had a really slick pitch and telling us how awesome we were. And, you know, for a, a big check, they were going to make all these great things happen. And what, what long and short, what came out of it is they put together these really nice kind of encyclopedia hardcover books about our business. We're like, wow, this is amazing. People are going to love us. And then zero follow through. There was like, you know, I don't even know what they did. They probably bought us lunch and that was it. But there was nothing that ever came of it. We're like, that was a total waste. Is this is investment banking? How much banking. did you pay for that? I'm thinking it was 50 grand. Oh my I, I God, we have, the same, we have the same story. These guys, it was Madison Street Capital out of New York. <laughs> okay. These bankers in suits came in. They flew out. They like made us feel like rock stars. And then they're like, hey, Ryan, all you have to do is you write this 100 page document. Yeah. You, you give us 40 grand. And then we'll take you to market. We did all that and they yep. never called us back. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Yeah. I think they hard bound covered our, you know, our printout and, and that was it. I was Cashed like, Why? check and said, see you later. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So same, same experience, same wonderful result. So that was, that was a swing and a miss. Uh, later we did it with a group out of uh, Texas and, you know, it was one of those things we just didn't. We didn't line up and we didn't do enough due diligence to say, okay, well, where's the fit? How are we going to get along? Because you already know this, but you spend a ton of time with the investment banker, broker, whoever you're going to be with. So you better get along. And they were nice enough, but he wasn't super engaged and he was older and he was, this is kind of a last pass for him. So we probably met with a few different private equity companies, but there was nothing exciting. And I don't think they had a good engagement plan for getting the right audience in front of us. And, you know, I look at it that way. They'd probably look at it like those guys didn't know what they were doing and on and on and on. So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. point of view, right? So then out of the, like, how, like oh, was that over the course of like a year or so? I mean, like, what, was there outside pressures? Because obviously taking chips off the table is a nice to have and a want, yeah. right? And then, or was it like the, the growing pains were getting so hard at this point where you were just saying, okay, we need a, an equity partner to, to infuse this with some cash? So, you know, what would have probably happened is we'd probably had to get off the accelerator because we're growing at like 25% year over year. And, you know, we kept breaking our leases with, with our, our uh, you know, where we had our offices. Mm -hmm. And, and every, we'd, we'd sign the shortest lease we could, like every three years would be the shortest one we could get. And like a year and a half in, we'd have too many people and then we'd have to break the lease and then they would upsell us to someplace else, you know, three miles away. And so they were fine with it because they were making more money, but we're like, this is expensive. This is getting really expensive. <laughs> and so, yeah. So if you're talking about outside pressures, it was probably more internal about like, how long can we keep this up to, to be able to make it go? And, and, you know, I'll, I'll give Al credit. I'll give Teresa, you know, our CFO credit. They're super smart as far as we never got too far out over our ski tips. We never got heavy in debt. Um, that's kind of that whole Midwestern, mm -hmm. if you can't pay cash for it, you shouldn't buy it. So for better, for worse, that was the way we operated, which is really tough in a growing business. You know, so we got to that point of we're like, we got to figure something out and we did see some opportunities. So you take chips off the table and you look for opportunity for equity. And that's what kept pushing us down. And so we'd wait a year or two, take another look, wait a year or two, uh, swing and a miss in Texas. And then, 
you know, then probably like the 04 range, we got serious about things. So then how did you, like after those two swing and misses, what was the process? And then how did you pick on the, or pick the next investment banker? So the third process we decided, let's take the smartest people we know that have had some history with an exit and ask them about what their experience has been, who they recommend, who they not recommend. And we kept going around and talking to as many people as we could. And we kind of triangulated as best as we could. And we came up with a group called Green, Holcomb and Fisher, a Twin Cities group. And it was really important to us to be able to look them in the eye, shake their hand and, and be close to them as often as possible. So that was, that was a big deal. And Eric Nicholson was the quarterback for our deal with Kyle Crow and uh, Mike Rapetti. And they were awesome. They were great. They were everything you could hope for in a deal team, in an investment banker. Um, and they were very honest with us early on about, uh, you know, I don't know what you guys think the business is worth, but here's what the world says. Here's your kind of range, right? And so that's kind of the first trick uh, that we learned is when we interviewed other investment bankers, some of them shoot a number to us like, oh my God, that's outrageously cool. It's like, <laughs> you got zero shot at that. Zero shot. Yeah. So, yeah. So once we got a dose of reality, we found guys we could work with, could get along with, and then they went to market. And, and you know, honestly, we were thinking, Al and I were talking about, we we're like, God, you know what? If they found like 12 companies that would be interested in us, wouldn't that be awesome? And, you know, you're kind of happy about it, but that was our first pass at, at really getting deeper into it. Uh, fast forward, and we had 200 companies come back to us with, we're interested. We want in on this. We want to know more. We want to interview the management team. We're like, oh my God, had we not had like good representation and a good buffer uh, between us, we'd have been overrun. We'd have never been able to keep our eye on the ball for the business. That So you, you hit on a, quite a few things there that I want, and then I want to dive into the, the, the process. But like, so because so many times, uh, like literally actually the guy that I just interviewed, he said like, he, he goes, if you do not keep your eye on the ball, this is like a second full-time job <laughs> and oh, because yeah. of yeah. how much work it is. So yeah. when you were, when the, when you were interviewing or working with the investment bankers, was there anything, was there major insights that they gave you that were helpful as you started analyzing these deals so that you weren't completely shocked at like all the different decisions that you're going to have to make? Yeah, there's two things that I vividly remember. The first is, and this is literally the best advice I ever got, and this is from Eric. And he said, be happy with what you get on the first pass, you know, because they always talk about second bite of the apple or rolling equity and that. He said, because after the first pass, it's not yours to control anymore. And, and all those decisions, you might have a hand in it, but it's not the same level of control. So be happy with what you get on the first pass. That was huge. And that stayed in our mind, which meant how much cash is going to be for us in the deal. The second thing, and this became really important as we started to vet the other side, as they became more serious about it, that is companies buy for their own reasons, right? They'll tell you whatever, right? They're going to tell you you're awesome. They're going to tell you we can take you to the moon, but they buy for their own reasons. So sometimes it's purely financial. They think that they can do their own financial model and it's going to grow at this rate and therefore you're worth this much. That's the financial. And then you have the strategics that come in and say, you know, if we add you into our mix for doing the things that we don't do well, we can one plus one makes three kind of deal, right? Mm -hmm. And so all these different things. And, and what, what I asked Eric, completely naive and said, Eric, don't we just take the guy that gives us the most money? Isn't that the deal? He goes, well, you know, that is a part of it, but that's not the only part because these guys that are giving you a check today are going to be your partners tomorrow. 
how are you going to figure out how are you going to get along? And so, but that became a long conversation as well. So you just like shed light on all the stuff I was, <laughs> I love it. I love it because, you know, in uh, we got our five principles and the first one is your, your drivers, which is knowing what you want. And it literally is not about the check. And I've got hundreds of interviews to prove that. Yeah. And like, so as you have 200 people coming to you, um, one, one part of this is curious on how, like the role the investment bankers played to help you guys with that. But then also as you, you and your partner, like, the dynamics tatters, like you and your partner might want different things. So I don't know if you guys ever aligned like what you both wanted besides just the check, but also like your role and responsibility going forward. But how did you analyze the difference of these offers that were coming down the table without, you know, in relationship to the money, right? Because there's, Mm -hmm. I mean, when people talk, I've never built a house, but I've been, I'm friends with people that have built a house and (laughs) and like the fact that most of them are married still is apparently a miracle because of the the decision fatigue, right? So when you and your partner are getting all of these things thrown at you, how are you weighing the different offers on the table? So again, each, each offer is unique and they did tell us they're all going to look different. And I, I didn't believe him at the time, but he was right. So I would say this is the magic of a great investment banking or broker partner is that they were the ones that early on started to shape down 200 to something that probably early stages, they were quick to squeeze out. I'll say 150 of them just to give you a round number um, to say, look, here's how many people are in the deal. These are what the numbers, these are what the ranges are starting to look like. Are you still in? And, you know, get plenty of people that are just interested because they want to either pull data or they're kicking tires or whatever. Mm -hmm. But as they saw, like, that there were serious buyers starting to come in and things were jumping up, you'd get people that they would naturally squeeze out. So there was a good attrition rate and that was really their early magic of being able to do that. So then you get down to your your group and you start having some experience exchange of ideas. And then they want to know, okay, what is Todd and Al? What is your plan for the future? How are you going to make this business more valuable? And then we told them and said, you know, here's how we see things growing potentially through acquisition, but also through, we have a strategic advantage in our technology because with all these people doing thousands and thousands of interactions with us, we have all of their history. So even though you know, Phyllis, who may be working in your IT department, has been tracking, you know, your whole West Coast for years. When she leaves, we're still going to know what is and isn't going on. So that was mm-hmm. valuable. So we kept pushing that up. And, you know, we saw a much bigger future. And that was kind of the alignment between me and Al. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to take a check and we're going to cut and run. This is like, no, we need somebody who's going to help us build this into something really cool. What could this thing become? What could we really push it towards? And that was exciting. So did you notice in the, the different buyers, people that actually, because I think aligning that vision is the hardest part mm-hmm. uh, and probably any, any handoff of a baton, especially a private equity recap where like you're going to be partners with these people is someone believing what you believe and not just totally bullshitting you. <laughs> so like, how did you find like what, you know, maybe tell, I don't know if you can compare and contrast of event, you know, the eventual one that you picked versus people that you could tell were not in alignment with you guys. Yeah. So uh, if I forget, you can remind me uh, to to tell you about the people buy for their own reasons and why did they yeah, actually yeah, yeah, buy. Yeah. So so catch me on that if I forget. But um, yeah, so, you know, Al and I, as we sat down and said, okay, what do we want when we get out of this? It's like, we still want to be in control. 
making decisions in the company. We're happy to have partners, but we still want to be able to drive this thing forward. We want to be in a leadership position. And we, and we still wanted to focus on national accounts that had geographic spread and all those things. And so we didn't want to like dive into it. Hey, let's, let's own the Toledo market or something like that. It was, it was still on that path. But we also saw a bigger opportunity. So we were kind of, I'll just say voice-centric early on, but data and you know, data and internet and those kind of connectivity issues became a much bigger story to tell going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, phones almost a throwaway. In fact, you go to a lot of offices, people don't even have phones. They just, you know, mobile now. Yep. But, but data is still a big deal. And so we wanted to make sure they had that in mind. And then you kind of quickly catch people. So a lot of strategics, we were a very narrow fit for a certain thing. And it was either a fit or it wasn't a fit. And, and early on, I, I think, honestly, when I look back on the contract that we signed uh, with Green Holcomb Fisher, you know, we kept saying, oh, it's going to be these guys, these guys are these guys. It's going to be one of these st- three strategics. And they're like, oh. Okay. And we're like, well, we don't want to pay you full price if it's one of these. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, abs- absolutely, boys. We'll let's make a space for those three names and we'll give you whatever, 25% discounters or something significant if it turns out to be something you already knew about. We're like, okay, we can live with that. Well, the long and short of it, they were nowhere in the lineup. They were just, you know, <laughs> and, and for all kinds of different reasons, right? You don't mm-hmm. know what they're going through. One of them had just done a major acquisition and was totally consumed with that. The other mm-hmm. one was going in a different uh, strategic direction. We didn't know that because we we're not in their board meetings, right? And then the, the third one, it just wasn't a fit for them. And so all three of those that we were so, so all fired concerned with, this is going to be the deal, not even a shot. But thank God that they had this large basket of other companies that were interested. And so once Al and I started saying, here's what we really want of the deal. Now you get down from 50 and now you get down to, you know, maybe 12 to 15 that were super serious about it. And, you know, this is when you kind of final beauty contest. What's your best offer? What are you going to do? What does it look like? And this is when you get into that whole mix of, cash and rolled equity and what else are they going to do to sweeten the deal and what do you have to offer and that's when everything really does look very different and so, so and, and then maybe this ties back into people buy for their own reasons yeah i think the biggest challenge of anybody that has not gone through this which is the art like i mean essentially what i've been preaching for five years five six years is like you have to understand this even if you like you have no intentions for 12 years to sell like mm-hmm. understanding that like you know not only what's important to you how to layer that on top of the financial structure, which I want you to dive into like the, you know, the rolled equity versus cash versus promissory notes versus probably your roles. But yep. then also what the buyer is going to do with your business and how yep. that aligns with what you want. Because those are a lot of different things to align to be able to analyze 12 different offers. Because if you went straight for the top dollar amount, that's different than the deal structure and different for what the heck they're going to do with the business and your role post-closing. Hundred percent, and so, um, so if 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 people are listening and they're listening, I I would highly recommend. I haven't had a chance to. I'm looking forward to attending one of your boot camps. I think it'd be great. But from the concepts you you and I talked about, I think it's hugely helpful for people to get a very firm construct in their mind about what does it look like now. What am I offering? What do I need it to look like on the other side of the deal? Yeah, right. And that's that's the point you're making, which I think is super valid. And to have something in in play with that is is very important. So I'm going to start with the people buy for their own reasons conversation. So we ended up with a, a private equity group out of Cleveland called Morgan Thaler. And 
they were one. So it was, I don't know if it was the top, top dollar, but it was, it was up there. And then they also had this other piece of it, which was there's the second bite of the apple. So there's rolled equity. And the big thing that they said, hey, and we, we have these other two companies. You're going to make an amazing platform company. We have these two bolt-ons, which is you know just kind of PE speak for you're going to be the main guys, and we're going to have these other companies yeah. become like subsidiaries or you know stepchildren of yours, right? Love and so the, we're love like, the analogy. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So so it's like you know you start and you know we're let's just round it. I'll call it thirty million, and you add on these other two companies, we're going to double in size overnight, right? And we're like. Oh my God, that is unbelievable. And we're thinking this is the coolest thing in the world because now we're really legit. We're big. We're going to have all the structure. They had government contracts. That's what they were good in. We weren't good in that. We did national companies on and on. So we were kind of feeling that was great. And then they also said, hey, we're hands off, right? So so your listeners probably already know, but you know, I have active management, passive management, that kind of thing. They were going to be passive management versus uh, the guys that want to come in and, and you know roll up their sleeves and get deep mm-hmm. in into your business. So, so we were happy about that. And, you know, the, the obvious part about the whole thing is, you know, we would still be in control of a bigger entity with lots of opportunity. And that was exciting. So strip that back and you see it from the other side of the table. And here's the truth, right? They, <laughs> they did have two companies. They did have two companies, one of which, uh, one of which was in financial freefall. So oh, no, we see yeah. a number, but it was a shadow of what it used to be. So, you know, there's the, the saying in the, the investment banking world of catching the falling knife. This was catching the falling knife. <laughs> and so, so we only saw where they are today and neither business had a CEO. They had, it's like a ship without a rudder both oh, ways. My gosh! And so they, they sold it to us on, oh, this is awesome because we won't have any leadership conflict. You guys just take over. <laughs> like, of course, because there's no yeah. leaders, right? So <laughs> like, we well, need you guys really yeah, bad, but we're not going to tell you yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So desperate for a date, but don't want to look desperate. And so, so that became the deal. And that, that's a big part of, of what worked out. We took a problem off of their hands. And this is, this is a lesson that I would pass on to, you know, if it's strategic in any way versus bare bones financial, and that's it. If it's strategic in any way, you need to find out what problem are you going to solve for them before you get any money passing hands? What problem are you going to solve? That was the problem that we solved. You need to repeat that. Cause like, that is like, honestly, like one of the huge things that we discuss uh, and like, and I'm talking about all the time is like, if it's anything besides numbers, mm-hmm. there's there's what I like I like to call the black swan. You don't yep. you yep. don't know what it is. So say it again. It's so yeah. important. So you need to understand as the seller, what problem are you going to solve for them? If you can't figure that out, don't do the deal because it'll go badly. I would promise you it'll go badly if you can't figure that out. And you know, we learned a lot in the process, right? So we had to downsize those other businesses. We kept part of it. We had to shutter part of it. It wasn't a happy time from a Morgan Taylor standpoint, but they got it. This wasn't a, uh, a problem that we got into, but it was a lot of shuffling after the fact. So it, oh, that was true. an important lesson learned. <laughs> and by, by the way, you're going to have to take this. Uh, I had a, a gentleman that I interviewed on the podcast and he said, so he called his lessons learned tuition payments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, lots of tuition payments. I've got millions of dollars in education. <laughs> that is a perfect way to put it. And it probably makes us all sleep better at night. It's, it's the investment we make in our future, but he's right. Yeah. That's so it, it's so important. So like, so 
you're saying that did you, so you and your partner got enough up front to the first pass where you guys were both happy with the financial situation? Yeah. So it was an 80, 20 split. You know, we rolled 20% equity, 10% each. And that was fine. And, and we really did believe in the company they, quite honestly, if you're going to work with private equity and you're going to go for a sale, if you're not willing to work and roll equity, they're not going to be interested right. because you know, that's, that's you showing you have faith in what you built and what they're buying. If you don't have any faith in it, why should they spend a dollar? So once as you're, as you're kind of in cleanup mode now, like what was like you and I talked on the phone last time and I, you know, there's a, something that I think you, you, uh, you heard kind of some truth in of like, where do they get their money and what's their time horizon? So how yeah. did, how, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wish I would have known those questions, right? <laughs> yeah. Not All handy learned. information to have. Yeah. <laughs> so like where, where did they get their money? What was their time horizon? And then how did that impact what you guys, your, your new strategic plans? And then how did that um, all unfold? So great questions to ask. Those have been, uh, you know, I, I think in the process they were, you know, on average, I've understood them to be about 10 year runs, right? So we, private equity, we're going to go out and get, we're going to raise 200 million for this kind of businesses. And it's, we'll get it back to you within 10 years. And that means that somewhere the whole pattern becomes three to five years for private equity. For the company, the individual companies inside of that big fund. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. like our company, Comworks, they were going to, you know, without saying it, you know, they always say, oh, it could be a long run. Could be this, could be that. But the reality is three <laughs> When the numbers years. work. <laughs> when the numbers work. Yeah. If we're still <laughs> pumping cash out or they can't find a buyer, those are usually the two reasons. Um, so, so yeah, they were, they were midway through because they'd already done these other two acquisitions and, you know, they were kind of floating around there. So we were probably within the last three years of when they really had to get serious about closing things out. You know, that's that's when you got to make some some big things happen. Uh, I would totally advise uh, any of your listeners to say that's the, those are perfect early entry questions when you're dealing with private equity. Is you know sometimes it's family money. So so if you think about private offices uh, or family mm-hmm. offices, um, they have a little bit different trajectory. They all talk buy and hold, but they still trade in and out of businesses. Mm-hmm. It's just a little longer horizon. But yeah, private equity three to five years is usually pretty standard. And that was kind of, we we're on the tail end of that. So it wasn't discussed at the time, but they were going to, they were going to plan to make something happen pretty quick. And so, yeah, so then we, we closed the deal. We moved forward, figured out what we got. We did uh, our speech to the employees, key people had already known about it. We had phantom, uh, phantom stock options for key people. So they were all vested in a good return and that was helpful to the cause. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so then we, we, told these are people, they were all, you know, pretty shocked, but the, you know, the beauty of it was, and we were very honest with this is like, look, this is going to help to ensure a brighter future for all of us. And specifically for you people, you know, we want to have continuity for all of you. And this is a way to make sure that happens. So it's a bigger future for everyone. And we're very honest about that. And that is the truth. And I then I ask you a question. Did, yeah, uh, for sure. did, which I'm assuming you believed all that right away. Did that change at any point where you'd no longer believe that and it felt gross saying it that this was a bigger future for all of you yeah yeah i can tell you exactly to the day when that happened we you know we had gone around right after we met our uh the washington dc company and the boston company and did that and that's when we started to understand what was or wasn't there but if you want to jump to kind of the the headlines of the next part if you go by ink standards, Inc. Magazine, Inc. 500 standards, the average CEO lasts six months after transition. 
for a, a number of good reasons. I think mine was almost six months to the day. So the question is, what happened? <laughs> so it, what happened is this. Everything started to, to change, right? We're, we're managing other businesses. We didn't have any coaches. We didn't have anyone other than the board, which are private equity people, which are very smart financial people. And private equity is generally they either were lawyers, they were bankers, or they were accountants. That's kind of their world. You know, <laughs> high touch people skills, that's, that's not their thing. What we could have really used was some good coaching to say, here's how you manage people. Here's how you work with, you know, new opportunities like that, all those different things. And so as we're kind of working through it, we started to realize this is, this is a lot to take on. We were totally up for the challenge. Here's something else that happens in the private equity world. The board of directors, the guys that you know did the deal and sat on the thing and said, we're going to be with you. We're in this with you. We're going to ride it with you. The board changed within a very short amount of time, within just a couple months after we had come on. You know, one guy retired, a couple others moved off. That whole scene changed. They brought in a new chairman of the board, super smart guy. Actually, still, I still like him. I, I still enjoy him, but he was a uh, general elect guy, a general electric GE guy, right? Oh, there you go. GE has a playbook, and, <laughs> yep. and here's how we run that Bottom playbook. 10%, get rid yep. of them. Drain, <laughs> the, drain the swamp. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so we were actually still growing and doing good. We were battling good with... Two other ships that we were trying to write in the process, but he sat me down. And he goes, "Hey, look, I'm I'm really looking for kind of a, a Ivy League Harvard guy that's already run, you know, a quarter billion dollar business." I was like, "Dude, you know what you bought? It was like <laughs> you can't you can't change that." And he says, "I know, and it's uncomfortable to say, but what we really need is a big time CEO to to run a big time company. You're not how'd that you, guy." How do you feel about that? Crushing, oh, crushed, or, crushed. Yeah. I was like, I had no intention of doing anything other than driving this thing to the next level. And, you know, it's one of those things you go home and you're a failure. How am I going to tell my wife? You know, luckily my kids, you know, they were young. All they cared about was, am I going to go play ball with them in the front yard? But, you know, for, for all the friends, what do you tell them? So much of our identity is wrapped up in the business. It was, it was just brought me to my knees. How did, how did you process that, Todd? Because this is the, uh, this this is the challenge that I think so many people that have been on the show, when they when they have that happen to them, they're like, I wish we wouldn't have sold, and I wish we would have done things differently. Yeah. So okay. So two two thoughts on that. First is the question that I ask myself, and what lets me sleep at night is this: I said, knowing what I know now. I even had this conversation with my wife Leslie yesterday. I said, knowing what I know now, all the things that transpired and what happened and what we got out of the deal, where the company went, what's going on. Would I do the deal today if, or would I have done it back then if I knew what I knew today? And the answer is yes. It was the right thing to do for the right time. And so hard as that was, it was the right thing for everybody involved. Not awesome from a personal fulfillment standpoint on my end, but it was the right thing. And How so, did you process that then? Like, yeah. like intellectually, you can understand that. It yeah. doesn't matter sometimes where you're just like, still, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. So I, I will say, so here's what's helpful to the cause. I, I will say, had I had a good coach, that would have been super helpful to the cause because there's, you know, there's some things that are really hard to talk to talk about if, if they haven't experienced what you've experienced and if they haven't been where you are. And having somebody that's that's a good 
partner mm-hmm. is a huge difference maker. That would have been good. The next best thing I would say is a great peer group. And I had a great peer group uh, of other entrepreneurs that I uh, got together with regularly. And they were hugely supportive. And they'd all kind of gone through their own iterations of that. And so that that was probably the most therapeutic part of mm-hmm. the process. Mm-hmm. So then what was the arrangement? Because you rolled 20%, I'm assuming a large check into the business. Um, And they're halfway through their fund. And that was a long time ago. So I know we're kind of running a little short on here on time, but like, how did the, how did that all unfold knowing that like okay you're emotionally kind of wounded and now you've got some financial stake in this machine your partner's still there so how did that all unfold yeah so i i could have been a big baby about the whole thing and just train wrecked it all right and and just made a mess of it you don't have any cause this isn't in the contract you're not going to do this on and on and on i ended up saying if this is good for the company if this is what's best for the company then i'm going to do what's best now the downside is my equity with twenty percent that you know my part is hostage, and now I don't have you know I have a board seat, but that's you know mm-hmm. that that's not the same leverage that you'd like to enjoy as a leader. You know, in the whole process, and this I think is a misstep on their part because they went out through this massive search for Harvard MBA that's run a quarter billion dollar company, and the ones they loved didn't love them, and the ones that wanted the job weren't good enough for them, so they had this mismatch and. I think personally, I think they did a horseshit job of the handoff, mm-hmm. but they made Al the CEO. I said, just go ahead and take it. And what they should have done is make it the big deal that it deserved to be for him because he was willing to step up. He was willing to do that. And he's a hell of a leader and a great guy. And they should have made a bigger deal about, hey, he's the man. We're going to let him do this. So after all that, literally you're Al ended up being the, the, the partner. So how many, how long was the timeline after them trying to find and having that mismatch where they ended up making Al the partner? You know, so it's probably as long as an executive search takes, I'm going to guess it was several months, but it was, it was one of those things that uh, it was very unceremonious and it, I think it deserved to be something more for such kind of a, a big transition. Well, especially for like, you know, I mean, I'm assuming you would kind of process it at this point. Thank God. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It was it still hard. It it took a full thirty days worth of just you know going on long runs and uh, letting my dog be a good listener and working with a peer group and that. But it, you know, before the 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 venom cleared, but then you know it stays with you for a while. It's it was such a big part of your life for a long time. It's hard to eject that all. I can't even imagine. I mean, I had a, one of my old employees call me up and ask about this previous employee that from like literally nine years ago, Todd, that yeah. was one of the most toxic people I've ever met. And like to this day, it bubbled all this stuff up. And I'm like, wow, I haven't felt that in a long, <laughs> long time. Holy cow. I'm usually, I guess that's not fully processed. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how that stuff lays dormant like a oh. virus and just comes booming back. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I was like, well, got that out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Therapeutic. Oh, so the, I mean, and especially when you're dealing with something like that, where you got to, you got to process it and it wasn't rewarded to, to Al, like it could have been. Right. So it was kind of like the worst of both scenarios. Yeah. So then what, what did they do? Like, I mean, did they sell again? I mean, I, and how did the, the rest of the, the story kind of pan out? Yeah. So, you know, I stayed on the board for a while. I think I was connected to him. Jeez, I should know this more, but I, I think it was like a three year hitch. 
And I would say average employment agreements range from three to five years. So it was it was kind of minimum engagement. And I was happy to be done with that. So they paid you an employment agreement for three years, even though you weren't CEO? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, shining light there, you certainly get to explore a lot of things. I took a blacksmithing and learned to play guitar and weird <laughs> stuff like that. There you go. Silver yeah. lining for sure. Yeah, yeah. Plus the kids were little. I got to be there all the time. And so, you know, that was fun time. You're building snow caves and you're going to you know, hockey games and all that stuff. So that was great. And then to unwind it though, you know, the equity was still stuck. The equity was still there, but now I was separated from them. And so you kind of fast forward. It was one of those things that, things go up and down. You know, we survived the dot-com crash. We survived 9-11, you know, all those different things. And yet, you know, we still got to this point of where things were going up and down. And then the financial crisis hit. And that was a really tough time where they had to go through some, some significant layoffs. I was, I was gone by then, but it's a tough time, tough thing to have to go through. So kind of fast forward up and down. There were some very short times where you know I was still on the board, and they were talking about wanting to just just close her out, just be done with it, shut it down. And it oh, thankfully, really? yeah, thankfully uh, between myself and probably more likely Al and some of the other people, he said, "Let's let's make this thing go. This is ridiculous as a short term hiccup." So, so that kept going. I, I would say if I had to give a final ending. So that second bite of the apple was really pretty small. So it was, you know, like a, a token payout. I'll just say it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal, but they did end up recapitalizing the business and restructured and Morgan Thaler was able to close out their fund and they went on their way and uh, they brought in new finance, new partners, you know, new people to the dance. And since then uh, they've continued to do well. And I think they've made, you know, other acquisitions and things that have continued to, to what was it like going through another PE recap? Were you involved in that at all? I mean, I mean, even, even if you were like, Al was, probably, Al, yeah. was, Al was, you know, front and center for the whole thing. Uh, but I was very much on the outside by then. So that was more or less line. Like, are, are you still wanting to get a check out of the deal? Here's a good way to get a check. Let's be done with this. And I was already thinking about other things. So that worked out fine, but it does go back to Eric Nicholson's point. Hey man, be happy with what you get on the first pass. Totally. Totally. So then what, you know, as you were kind of reinventing yourself, I, you know, I know we could probably do a whole nother podcast on this, but like what, you know, what, was there any tools or any, you said peer group, you said coaching, but like, you know, what, how did you reinvent yourself to be the point where like you found your identity and passion and like, how are you recalibrating things differently knowing that you shouldn't double down your entire identity <laughs> yeah. into one thing? Yeah. So that was a very clear directive from my wife, Leslie is like, we're not going <laughs> to gamble everything again. We've kind of reached a point where we don't have to do that again. So, you know, with a, another company that had started with, with some other people that were very good in the business was a company called Sonic which was a management group designed to help pro professionalize a lot of these tech companies that were out there. A lot of these people that were our subs that want to know, how do I hire better people? How do I delegate effectively? How do I find better clients? All these questions that Comworks was never de designed to answer. And so we built a company around that. We learned a ton. I was able to kind of pour myself into that. And we made them millions and millions of dollars of, you know, helping them grow their business and things like that. And, that was really what helped us kind of galvanize, helped me galvanize the things, you know, that I love doing, the things mm -hmm. that still give me energy and the things that get me paid. And so when you kind of find the crosshairs of those things, that 
Say that. Say the crosshairs again. That was. I think that was very, very. So the, the thing, the things you do well, the things that bring you energy, and the things that people are willing to pay you for. You know, you really had to get mm-hmm. three out of three to find something that's a real passion for yourself. Because you may be good at it, but if it's just one of those things, you're like, yeah, I'm good, but I don't love it. It's like sooner or later things are going to get tough. So if it's not a passion, it's going to be a problem. And you may love it, and people may love you know doing it with you. But if they're not willing to pay you for it, then it's a hobby and call it a hobby and be okay with that. Well, and I, what I find interesting, Todd, is that like the, when an entrepreneur runs out of the energy and they're, they're, even though they're doing it well and they're getting paid money, that's when they leave a lot of money on the table and they sacrifice this X and they want out, right? And then yeah. things go bad. Or when you're doing it while well, you're getting paid and you have energy, but then you have a new partner like you did, and then you're, you're yanked out of that situation unwillingly, that also leaves you unhappy. So it's like, it's very hard to, for me to articulate constantly of like, this word, you know, this word intention has been obviously bubbling yeah. a lot to the top in our society, but also that's kind of the name of the, the boot camp and potentially the new name of the podcast. And it's like, if you understood how this all works, you can continuously refine to make sure that you're always in that nucleus of that, that the crosshairs, like you said, but it's yeah. hard if you don't know, you don't know these lessons like you talked about. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I would take your boot camp to be something like, I would picture it like a backstage pass, right? This is what everything looks like on the other side. This is why you're going to do those things that may not make all the sense in the world. This is why stop talking about top line growth, start talking about, you know, what's the value? What's the money you're keeping? You know, those kind of things. And how do you put processes in place that are meaningful? So it's, you know, everyone's not running back to you for how do we do this, Ryan? How do we do that, Ryan? You know, th- those mm-hmm. are important things. And I think if you talk about intentionality, that's the way I would look at that. And, and, and I'm hoping to learn from that uh, when I get to visit with you. But I think it's, it'd be hugely valuable to have that backstage pass before you got in the throes. So the biggest lessons, right? I'm going to go back to kind of the, the, the two pieces of advice coming out of it. One, be happy with what you get on the first pass because after that, you just don't have the same level of control. And the other thing I would say is people buy for their own reasons. And, you know, you need to figure that out when you're making the sale. Because in my experience uh, as an owner and working with, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of other owners that go through it, when you strip everything else away, there are two things that become important. One is certainly the size of the check. The other is the legacy that you're leaving behind that typically represents a decade or two or three or four worth of your life. So important. And I think being able to weigh, I mean, like literally you're summing up our principles of like, if you understand what you want, then you layer your financial results on top or the financial decisions on top of what you want. And then you've got the ability to articulate for the first time, this legacy is worth, like these decisions are worth this much to me versus like too many times it happens after the fact and you don't know it. And then you're like, oh crap. And I think it's just super, super hard. The, and to process it, right? When you're not when you didn't want to process it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I think I think being able to quantify the bets you're going to make or willing to say no to is hugely important. I would say not everybody's awesome at that. So I think there's value in being able to do it. So Todd, if someone wants to reach out to you, find your, your resources, strategic planning, your podcast, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. So Dynasty Leadership Podcast is my podcast. I'm looking forward to having you on, Ryan. Then you can interrogate me. <laughs> exactly. Change, change seats. Um, 
you can get me by email, Todd at DynastyLC.com. So DynastyLarryCharlie.com. Or you can get me by phone, 612-845-2076. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Todd. Absolutely. It was wonderful, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Todd. If there's one big takeaway, I think it's really diving into your own education. This is not about exiting your company. This is about understanding the way the world works, why your company would be valued, why people would want to buy it, and then build your own growth plan that allows you to connect all the dots with the exact things that you want, not only for your personal legacy and for your lifestyle, but also for your financial targets because you have a valuable company that allows you to get what you want no matter what happens to you, whether you get another blue offer, the economy tanks, it doesn't matter because you've protected yourself by building a valuable business. Check out one of our two-day boot camps. It's on the website, arcona.io. I've got the curriculum out there. I'm happy to have phone calls to chat with anybody about what you're going to walk away with. We just had 15 entrepreneurs who went through this boot camp, headed to Arizona, and we're going to be doing one down in Tucson, and we're going to be doing more in Minnesota. So please check them out and make sure you tune in for next week where I interview a rock star who really, really gives us a true understanding of what it was like bootstrapping his company up to $120 million and then selling to a private equity firm and how he learned the difference between strategic buyers and PE firms. I hope you enjoy your week and I will talk to you next week.